Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Well, welcome everyone to Hope for Healthcare. I have a very special guest with us today. Her name is Liz Bohm. She is an executive strategist for Vocera Communications and now part of Stryker. Liz's life work is to restore dignity and respect to the healthcare experience. Liz has extensive healthcare background, including 15 years as a global healthcare researcher at Forest Research. Her work focused on patient and consumer behavior, delivery and payment system management, and the role of technology in helping to transform healthcare. This experience has made her a national expert on experience transformation and ultimately the human experience. Beginning her career as a Peace Corps volunteer at a health center in rural West Africa, Liz has been relentless in her pursuit to improve human connections and conditions in healthcare. Through her professional and volunteer work in hospitals, she has developed a profound respect for the dedication of the doctors, nurses, and the staff who commit their lives to caring, as well as the courage of patients who survive and thrive as a result of their combined efforts. Well, welcome, Liz. We are so happy to have you here on our podcast today. Can you Thank you so me? much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You're just so overqualified, and I'm just so excited to get into the meat of the discussion about the human experience from your standpoint. Thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in resolving our healthcare burnout crisis and really focusing on the patient um, human experience in healthcare? Absolutely. So, you know, my careers really happened in two parts. One was looking at the intersection of people and technology. And then the other part is really looking at, and it's odd to say it this way, but the intersection of people and humanity. And what the, the common thread in both of those things is that relationships matter more than transactions. So in the technology world, what that means is the way that trust comes across through those transactions, whether transactions are easy to complete, in the human world, what that means is that the relationships, the communication that surround transactions, even when they're critical, like a life-saving surgery, are such an important part of both whether the professionals involved find satisfaction and joy and sustainability in that work, and whether patients and families actually feel not only like they've been cured or healed or, or cared, you know, received care, but that they've been cared about. And a piece underneath that is that trust is at the heart of relationships, mm. right? Again, whether that's trust that you're feeling because transactions are moving forward, you're feeling like a website is going to work or the, the trust that you're experiencing between clinicians or between team members and their leaders, that is essential to people being able to show up whole and show up for healing. And trust is fragile, right? It can be broken so easily. And, and even if you start with an assumption of trust, you have to nurture it, you have to maintain it. And when I look at burnout, the link here is that burnout, you know, there's all kinds of scholarship on burnout, but burnout results in part from broken trust and broken relationship agreements. Whether those are 
you know, the expectation that as a professional, you're going to be given the autonomy and respect to do your work, given the tools that you need to do it, or whether that trust is um, that you're going to have the PPE that, that you deserve, right? Trust is, when trust is missing or broken, then, then you've got an environment that's ripe for burnout. And so having seen that throughout my career and having seen the human consequences, seen people who are dedicated to healing, who have incredible skill and competency, just kind of hang their head in despair. You, you can't help but reach out and say, there's, there's something we can do to solve this and something we can do to help understand it and bring those solutions to market. So that's where my, my focus has been. Wow, Liz, well, you're certainly qualified to talk about the human connection experience with your decades of research. Anna, you know, I'm really curious, you um, lead the CEO coalition in its efforts to really expand the definition of team member safety and to promote safe work environments for healthcare team members. Can you talk to us a little bit more about this coalition and how it's evolved over the years under your leadership? Absolutely. So first of all, it's not strictly under my leadership. There are many people <laughs> making it work. Um, but the origin of that work came because in the pandemic, it became really clear that this, this idea of trust and social compacts was being broken left, right, and center, right? Whether it was team members worrying about having enough PPE, whether it was feeling often for many of them at the first, for the first mm -hmm. time unsafe at work, right? EVS workers for the first time having to don and off PPE, full PPE, and whether they felt safe and supported in doing that, um, whether it was, um, you know, the the communal trust of wearing masks or not wearing masks or respecting one another's equity and differences right up in the wake of the, the racial injustice uprisings. Mm -hmm. All of that was, was so visible and present. And all of these were issues that existed before the pandemic, right? But they all got amplified and brought to the fore. And you know, Liz, that's a really good point to make because it's really important to understand our healthcare system has been kind of falling apart and crumbling with its foundation for decades and decades, but the pandemic highlighted, I think, a lot of the different pieces that were really, were really not coming together and dysfunctional. Yeah, and I try not to doom and gloom because there have been amazing like science advances. There have been amazing advances in treatment and technology. There are people who are dedicated and doing wonderful things, but there are systems and structures that were designed in an era where, um, where discrimination and inequity were, were perfectly allowable. There's been a technology revolution that has looked, that has captured certain parts of the, of the healthcare environment, like the need for billing transactions and things like that without recognizing what the human toll of that is on clinicians, right? So yes. I don't think yes. it sounds like the whole system is an utter failure. No, I mean, yeah. it's, it's this idea we've lost sight of the need to focus on humanity and the fact that people are the ultimate and, and critical resources in healthcare that make it function or not function that have to be centered in their humanity in order to do the healing work that people and patients really need. Absolutely, Liz. And that's a really great point too, that there's so many wonderful things about our culture of medicine and healthcare industry in America. And so many things are working well, right? So it's really, I think, a matter of identifying what areas we need to bring up to speed and, and you know, modernize, especially to include diversity, equity, and inclusion and well-being. So yeah, and to again, that recognition of people as the fundamental element, that the system itself is is not more important than any of the people that are in it. Yes. So when we saw those, those compacts being broken, we saw these team members under this enormous amount of stress. And we saw these leaders who were um, just 
overwhelmed, and I say that not because they didn't have enormous capacity and capability, but overwhelmed with the shifts that were happening literally on a daily basis about how do they manage organizations? How do they manage visitors? How do they keep team members safe? How do they you know, deal with supply chain disruption and all of that? And we said, okay, there's a role for us when we sit, we being my team at Vocera who you know, formally came out of the Experience Innovation Network, where we sit slightly outside of that fray in terms of we're not running a health system, but we have these relationships, we have this capacity to bring ideas and shepherd them forward and support people. We, we said, we need to be, we, there's a role we can play here in bringing visibility, awareness, and ultimately solutions to this in crisis that team members are gonna be experiencing. My mentor, Dr. Bridget Duffy, reached out to her network of CEO friends and family who think this similar way and found, you know, found these CEOs. Then they invited some other CEOs and ultimately we landed on this group of 10, you know, visionary leaders who were willing to step forward and say, even in the middle of a crisis, team members safety and well-being matters and we have to think as expansively about this as possible. And so when I say expansively, we we really we put out this declaration of principles collectively which you can find at www.ceocoalition.com because I'm not going to go through all the principles. Okay. But it it basically said there are three pillars to team member safety and well-being and they're all equally important. So one pillar is safeguarding psychological and emotional safety. Right, that is, and and safety is the word here. We're not saying, you know, your well, and I think what every human being deserves well-being. But when you say well-being and versus safety, safety is always going to win. So we're trying to elevate the idea that okay. if somebody is cognitively overloaded, if somebody is psychologically unsafe, if somebody is emotionally overburdened, that's a safety issue. That is not simply a oh poor baby, right? Or like, or you don't have the capacity, or buck up, little trooper, right? It's no. it is fundamentally an unsafe healthcare environment. So that's that's one pillar. The second pillar is promoting health justice. Okay. Because if this idea of safety isn't applied equally to every human being in the system, then we're only as safe as the most unsafe part of the system. So we have to have this equity lens. And again, our systems historically have been built in an environment where prejudice and bias exists. They're part of our social structure. So of course they're reflected in our systems, but we can undo it. And then the third is physical safety. And physical safety has been historically more of the focus, right? People think about back injuries, needle sticks, those sort of things, but increasingly workplace violence, increasingly thinking about, you know, uh, shooting events and things that um, have unfortunately risen during the pandemic. So we said, those are the three pillars that matter. And we put that declaration out in the world and these brave leaders, these CEOs put their names on it to say, hold me accountable to this. It really matters. And since that launch in in 2021, nine more leaders have stepped forward to put it and they've connected their teams in an effort to raise visibility about this issue of safety to advance and learn from one another and share um, these these ideas about how to move this forward, uh, and then ultimately to look for where can we influence the broader ecosystem because this isn't the work of any one system. Until team members are safe in every system, they're ultimately not safe and they can't fully explore their capacity across their careers. Absolutely, Liz. And so this, so I and I can for the audience listening today, I will post some of these links and information that Liz makes available on her webpage and, and in the posting as well. So, um, but yeah, so this sounds like a great resource for CEOs across the country. Can they? How do they get involved, or how do they? How do they join the organization? 
The so joint it's this isn't a paid entity. They they simply um, put their names out in public and say we pledge to this. Now I, I say that simply, right? It's not a simple thing to put your name to something with integrity, right? right. So all right. of the leaders who are doing this are saying yes. Myself as the CEO and my leadership team are willing to work towards this, and we're willing again to be publicly held accountable. So um, so it's it's committing to the work and and making yourself publicly accountable to it. Absolutely. Well, that's great. Um, you know, this kind of leads into in the next phase, because I know that we've talked a little bit about you were recently in New York at the National Burnout Symposium, and I and I got to meet you in person there, Liz. And it was great. It was great it, to get to see you. It was you great to see you too. <laughs> it's so great to have that human connection in person too, you know, it you know, I've seen your name everywhere and, and I was just so looking forward to actually putting a face to all the work that you've been doing. Um, you moderated a panel on diversity, equity, inclusion, and well-being. Um, and the name of the panel was um, at the intersection of burnout and health justice. And, you, you know, Liz, you did such a phenomenal job. I know there were some sensitive topics that were discussed. Can you just give our audience an overview of um, the panel discussion and any highlights that you want to want to take away from that? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge the panelists. So uh, I was the moderator. They were really the brilliance. And that's Dr. Angela Gefford from Children's of Minnesota, Dr. Lou Hart from Yale, and Peter Rodney, who's one of the CNOs at NYU Langone. And it was really important to have a diversity of perspectives, including, you know, some physician perspective, nurse perspective, you know, in a perfect world, we have a panel that represents all those. Um, we had uh, people of color on the panel, we had uh, gender non-binary, right, like there was that, first of all, in order to have a discussion about diversity, equity, inclusion, we need diverse voices at the table. Absolutely. Um, and I have learned so much from those leaders, so I, I want to express my gratitude to them. Um, reason we wanted to include the a panel on diversity, equity, and inclusion in a burnout symposium, and I hat tip to Dr. Tina Shaw, who was one of the organizers who invited us in, mm -hmm. is, is that idea, again, that, that if it, we have to ask the question of when we're talking about safety and well-being, for whom? Right? When we put something in place, when we put a resource in place, when we put a policy in place, who does it encompass and who doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and it may not be possible to be all inclusive all the time, but if we don't ask those questions, we're very likely to land uh, in a place where the majority is captured almost all of the time and minority may well be left out and min or min minority or historically excluded, right? Historically underrepresented. And so when we ask those questions, who is excluded? How can we make it more inclusive? If we have to make those trade-offs, how do we circle back? And that's a hat tip to health partners um, and their equity pledge. They're, they're members of the CEO coalition and, and have shared some of this. Um, if we don't explicitly ask those questions, then we'll keep perpetuating the same assumptions we've had in the past. But what the panel looked at really was, was three different levels of thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. One is the, the sort of individual personal level. And that's often both where people focus and one of the areas that's more fraught, right? So why is, where people focus, meaning they look at um, implicit bias training. And that's absolutely essential, right? To be able to reflect on ourselves, ideally with, with little judgment, meaning the purpose of it is not to say, boy, look, look how biased and awful or racist I am. It's more to say, 
everybody has thought structures and those thought structures are geared a certain way based on upbringing, environment, you know, whatever they've been exposed to. Um, but it also is, is not the whole of the story, right? So then we looked up at the organizational level, what are the systems and structures that can lead to kind of systemic exclusion? And that could be things like, you know, we've seen in the news lately, pulse oximeters that read better on non-melanated skin than on melanated skin and may determine who gets a ventilator in times of shortages and who doesn't, right? And so who when we see this, yeah. right, these inequitable outcomes, it's based on research that was done decades ago around these pulse oximeters where white was considered normal. And so that's who it was trialed on, right? So we have to be constantly looking at those, those pieces. That's one side of it. It could also be policies that make it difficult for, let's say, um, people who are primary caregivers, which is primarily women in their in their homes who don't have the same flexibility and therefore don't get the same uh, promotion opportunities, right? And why we end up with a gradient of gender and often race as we go higher up in terms of power structures within an organization. So how do we start to both visualize those and then dismantle them uh, to the extent that that's, that's possible? so that we're creating an environment where it really is actually a, a level playing field or we're, and, and equity rather than equality. Yeah. So it's not like we give everybody the same entry points they go. We say, you know, you're actually fighting up a gradient. We're gonna give you a push, right? Whereas you're not fighting up that gradient. So in order for you both to have shots at that, we're, we have to create sometimes these equity structures as opposed to equality. And then the last we looked at was um, the, the sort of macro environmental, right? What are the systems um, in the broader universe of healthcare that make it harder or easier for some groups to move forward? And how, how can we picture those ideas? And, and again, start to dismantle them, advocate both within, you know, any given health system is often one of the larger employers in its community. You know, you look at, for example, what Henry Ford Health System did um, when they looked at um, the pandemic and said, you know, some of these people who are coming to us who are disadvantaged and unhoused are our employees. Mm -hmm. we, we're going to raise the minimum wage because it's part of be doing health for our team members, because it's part of being just in a broader environment. And then we can show that example and, and encourage others in our community to do the same, right? So being that broader steward of it. Um, it was really an incredible honor to be able to to lead that panel with such um, powerful speakers. Yes, and you know, I think one of our takeaways was really, you know, in order to they they used the term the wiring in the wall kind of was one of the euphemisms that was used. And I really like that. And you know, when we're talking about rehabbing our culture of medicine and healthcare systems nationwide, you know, it's really about rewiring and reprogramming and, you know, dismantling the old paradigms and the old systems and the old data based on, you know, antiquated, like you said, research on, on pulse oximeters from the 1940s or whatever. And it's really, you know, in order to weave all of this into the fabric of the healthcare system, it requires all of the different levels, like you said, the individual, the institutional level, and then the macro level. Um, however, I think when, you know, at the systems and the macro level, when we're making changes, a lot of times 
the administration forgets to bring the different diversity key stakeholders to the table to make the changes and to be part of that decision process. And so it's so important to have that included, like if you're going to have a task force on DEI within your health system, you know, instead of it just being like the chief medical officer and chief well-being officer and maybe nursing leadership, consider having, you know, the anybody that's kind of a champion for diversity, equity, inclusion in your health system being on that panel. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I mean, it needs to, I mean, it, a lot of people will say, well, this is everybody's job, so we don't necessarily need a leader. The same way they used to say about quality, the same way they, they used to say about patient experience, the same way they're currently saying sometimes about well-being. But the truth of, of the matter is that change requires um, people who are willing to shepherd it. And if you are not making that somebody's explicit responsibility, you're asking somebody to carry that burden. And often you're asking people who are historically underrepresented yes. to carry that burden. And that's yet more invisible or, or emotional labor um, that is not recognized, not necessarily going to advance them towards promotion. And so I think it's really important to have those formal structures, uh, to have recognition, to carve out time, to have that not be volunteer time or what's often called in nursing, non-productive time for when yes. they're doing you know, strategic yes. and systemic work. It has to be recognized. It does. Otherwise, that continues to create more burnout and add to burnout and marginalizing already minority populations and people who feel um, like they're not included. So uh, exactly. I agree. I agree, Liz. Well, um, you know, gosh, you have done so many different, you've been so many part of so many different projects on the past several years, especially with the pandemic. And one of the um, projects you're part of is that you were you helped design the 2022 healthcare workforce rescue package, and it was your CEO coalition along with the AMA, American Hospital Association, Lorna Breen Foundation, um, NAM, Dr. Tina Shaw, Dr. Heather Farley as well, and so and the ANA and AONL. Yes, yeah, so it was really critical. So to have it was incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about some of you know the top five recommendations that you came up with and and a little bit and unpack that for us a little more? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, this came about. Um, it was literally, I think, New Year's Eve of 2021 <laughs> that I received an email from from Heather and from Dr. Dr. Farley and Dr. Shaw. So that's Heather and Tina um, saying we're you know we're looking the problem we're looking to tackle here is the fact that there are so many different avenues that people can go down towards well-being for team members. And right now there is a lot of appetite and attention on the problem. That was the middle of the Omicron wave, right? And, and so much disruption and staffing disruption already starting to happen. Um, and, and leaders, particularly leaders in perhaps smaller systems or systems that haven't appointed a chief well-being officer, they don't know where to start. They want to do something. There's an appetite for change, but they don't know where to start. And so the idea was to pull together this panel of experts who have been studying and researching this for a while to say, can we give, can we put together a top five list? And I think, so we start, it was a very democratic process. Let's all start by throwing ideas in the ring. And one of the things that was so beautiful is that we were down to, I want to say six within the first round because it, we had all been studying this for so long and looked at it and said, this, this is really where it needs to be. And it needs to be on system kind of changes and supports that have impact right now. And the idea was, let's give five, the five recommendations for the things that will have the impact right now at this moment of the pandemic, right? Six months from now, it might be different things. But honestly, 
long term, I think these are foundational for any organization that's trying to invest in the, the safety and well-being of their team members. So the things we landed on were first to recognize that these are non-normal times, adjust expectations, right? So that what that means is that in a time when you are resource constrained, asking people to live up to the, the KPIs or organizational expectations of normal resource allocation is setting them up for failure and that is fundamentally unfair. There's um, a, a great experiment, the Red Beat experiment by Edward Deming that shows that when team members are, uh, so the, the idea was they were given this task of collect a certain number of red beads in a certain amount of time and the task was set up so, with the tools such that it was impossible to do that. And, and they asked people when they came out of this experiment, how did you feel? And they're like, I, I really wanted to succeed and I couldn't succeed. It's really demoral, it's upsetting. Right now, if people are upset not being able to collect the right number of red beads in an experiment, right? Like it, it's truly demoralizing. It's moral injury. Well, moral injury, we'll get into some of that. Yeah. It's, it's unfair and it's, it's actually dangerous and um, damaging to give, to ask people to live up to standards that they're not resourced to live up to. So that was the idea number one is like, look at it. And that doesn't mean step away from quality. That doesn't mean step away from safety. But what it means to say, these are the resources that we have and this is what's possible with those resources. And that's what you're accountable to. Okay. The second was get rid of stupid stuff. And that's an idea that existed before the pandemic. I love it because the acronym spells gross. Gross, um, I, know. <laughs> I know. Created by Dr. Melinda Ashton in Hawaii. And it was originally oriented towards EHR and EHR is definitely part of it. But it's the idea that if there's administrative stuff that's not fundamentally driving value for the system, it out. We are really good in healthcare at adding one more thing, adding one more thing, and not going back and auditing what can come out, right? What can we take? If we're going to put something on your plate, what can we take off your plate? And if we're making that trade-off, is what we're putting on your plate more valuable than what we're taking off your plate? And if it's not, then maybe this thing we're trying to add to your plate isn't the right thing to add right now. So right, just creating that leadership discipline around that. The third was to get radical to shore up so many organizations are short-staffed and clinical and frontline folks have really borne a lot of the brunt through the pandemic, particularly in the middle of a, a surge where, you know, and at, at the beginning, it was nurses who were almost the only ones going in, in full PE, PPE, spending time with patients. Well, if that's what they're going to do, how can we have all hands on deck to help every other to take the administrative piece off their, their plate to, to deal with all of the other pieces that just makes it easier. And that might be shifting leadership into, um, you know, rounding where they're helping out. It might be, you know, hiring people, temporary staff. It, you know, every organization will have its own solution, but it's unfair to tell team members that they have to continue just working in short-staffed environments in perpetuity without doing everything possible to solve it. Right. Fourth was to designate a well-being executive um, and realizing we wanted these, uh, the well-being five, that's our, that's the sort of shorthand for the 2022 healthcare workforce rescue package. We want it to be accessible to everyone. So it may not always be, you know, a full-time role. Mm -hmm. It may be partly a committee, but if somebody isn't coordinating this, then you're going to have, you know, bits and pieces happening in all these different places because everybody's well-intentioned and wants to do something, but you're probably not going to be shepherding your resources as effectively as you could be yeah, that's if it weren't coordinated. Yeah. Right. And then finally, EAP is not enough, do more. And what that recognizes is two things. One is that, so EAP has wonderful resources and we certainly were not trying to denigrate EAP in any way. And EAP stands for Employee Assistance Programs. 
which often has the mental health, substance abuse, those sorts of resources available. And first and foremost, there's a little bit of a stigma around some of that. So we need to be actively working to remove the stigma, even if EAP is some of the resources that we're applying, we might apply them in a different way. But secondly, EAP is also typically reactive, right? It asks the person who is in distress to go out and seek the resource. And what this means really is bring the resource to people by doing psychological first aid training by, for leaders. So a leader can say, here's the, you know, you, 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 seem, you seem to be experiencing distress, which is completely understandable in this such situation. Here are the tools and resources and sort of actively warmly hand them mm -hmm. off to that. Mm -hmm. um, or we're gonna have a session right here on the unit. So you don't have to go anywhere and you do that in your own time. The expectation is that of course you are stressed, distressed, possibly even traumatized by what has gone on in your work environment. And so we're going to make work time in order to help you help us address that collectively. So that's what that one meant. Um, and, and there's a lot, you know, I know Lorna Breen Foundation, for example, is, is doing a lot to, to resource organizations to drive forward the Wellbeing Five mm -hmm. um, and really make sure that organizations know how to get started. And the one other thing about the, this five is for each of these, we've, we chose publicly available resources, mostly from the NAM compendium that would help people get started. And we, we picked like one or two so that they wouldn't have, and their NAM has a huge amount of wonderful resources, but we wanted people to say, okay, if you only read one thing, here's a place you can get started. Okay, perfect. And yeah, and for the audience, I will post all this information and Liz has a wonderful blog post that she wrote that outlines uh, the work health workforce package. Um, so I'll be posting that as well. <laughs> Thank you. It's a great to make it easy for people to find stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, we all got, a, you, you guys got such great feedback on, on the work that you did. I know, I know it was so much work to put that together. And what I, what I love about it is it really is in alignment with the Surgeon General and his advisory that he, that came out this spring, as well as the National Academy of Medicine, their guidelines and the AMA. I mean, it really, it was really well done and pulled together all of the languaging and the basic pillars uh, for well-being and DEI. So thank you for doing that work. <laughs> thank you. And that's exactly was our intention yes. is not to recreate the wheel, but to give people oh. a great, easy entry point into it. Yes, a good place to start. So yeah. thank you. Well, um, Liz, I know that, you know, you're really, you're really so focused on bringing the human connection back into healthcare and team member safety. And how do you, how do you seeing this evolve in the future? And what are some of your plans? Uh, for organizational well-being? Absolutely. So it's a great question. And I think first it's worth acknowledging that we're seeing more attention on this area than, than certainly I have any time in my 25 career, 25 year career. And I'm really grateful for that. And I think that's a really good thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if I sort of create my utopian vision, I look forward to not having to say safety and well-being. I want to, I would love if, you know, I feel like I will be successful in my work if when people hear safety for team members, they think of the three pillars, they think psychological and emotional safety, physical safety, and health justice, and that those become so interconnected that there's, and, and elevated in their importance, the way that safety can and should be, that it's not a question of, oh, well, the well-being piece is nice to have. And all we care about is the, you know, the physical injury, what's visible to people, the invisible injuries of racism and bias, the invisible injuries of cognitive overload and burnout. 
um, need to stay front and center as, as our understanding of how to create safe health systems. Um, and then that's, that sort of alludes to the second piece, which is that, that really we, we do see that it is fundamental, that, the, that people, no matter how technology evolves within healthcare, people and their core humanity will remain fundamental to the mission. And so we have to protect not just their productivity, but their humanity and shepherd those as resources and not just resources in the sense of something we can take advantage of, but resources that every human being almost as a human right deserves to have supported, resourced, respected as part of being in a work environment. And, and frankly, I hope that's across mm -hmm. all industries, right? That we respect the dignity of work, the dignity of difference, the dignity of um, inclusion and belonging. And, and so that's the probably the last part of my utopian vision is that, um, that, that we never have a discussion about business and productivity and numbers and bottom line without the humanity element to it. That we are always saying that, that the only way to make business sustainable, the only way to ethically, morally, and therefore, um, uh, you know, maybe legally and appropriately practice in a business setting, whether that's healthcare or otherwise, is with human beings and, and humanity at the center of that work. I mean, that, Liz, that was so beautifully stated and articulated, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about rewiring an entire culture of medicine, which is a huge part of our economy and a huge part of our emotional investment in the United States and globally. And, you know, it, the human connection and the heart connection and restoring the sacred clinician patient relationship has to be at the heart because without patients, we have no healthcare system. Right. And without, and without uh, clinicians who can show up whole, we will not be really doing healing. And that's the purpose. And, and that is the purpose. Absolutely. <laughs> well, is there any, Liz, I know we've unpacked and, and dug in deeply to several different topics today. Is there anything that you want to leave with our audience before we wrap up today? A good question. I think only, the only thing is that this is, this is work that every, that everybody can embrace. I don't, you know, as you know, I host a podcast called Caring Greatly, which is geared towards leaders. And I've always used that term as inclusively as possible. You can lead as a, as a Gen Z, or you can lead from a position of informal power within an organization. You can lead as the CEO. You can lead as a patient. You can lead from so many different ways. And so, you know, whatever your little piece of this big puzzle we call healthcare is, um, I would, I would suggest don't don't be afraid i was talking to a clinician today who was saying that fundamentally she thinks a lot of her work comes down to love but she was afraid to say love don't be afraid to say love say love embrace love embrace humanity embrace joy whatever your sphere of influence is and you'll be part of the solution and embrace equity uh, because everybody deserves this i perfectly said, Liz. I don't even know if I want to comment. It was just, that was the perfect ending. <laughs> Thank you. And, and I agree, you know, as a psychiatrist and, um, 
a holistic healer and a trauma survivor and, you know, champion for well-being, I couldn't agree more with you that it all comes down to love. And the more we are able to love ourselves and practice that within ourselves, the more we are able to love our colleagues, our patients, our bosses, you know, our careers, um, our family, our friends. So love really is at the heart of everything. And um, I believe that I, I agree with you that we should be able to use that word in healthcare, <laughs> especially. And yet you're right, we are. I mean, I, I even stumbled around it too, because as a physician, I'm like, well, do I really say the word love? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Love, love heals. Love and I heals. love that you give us permission to, to say that today. Well, thank you for giving me a, a place to, to say it. And thank you for what you shared of yourself and the work that you're doing to help. Yeah. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's the least I can do, Liz. You know, I really, I want to leave a legacy and I want to create a healthier workforce and environment for our future healthcare workers coming up and in education. And, um, you know, I just, I, I won't rest until I know that we're in a better place. I will be right there with you. <laughs> it's a calling. So, <laughs> All right. Well, Liz, thank you so much for being with us today. I can't thank you enough for the time that you've invested in, in, in helping us understand more about um, the CEO coalition, coalition, the work that you've done over the decades of research in the human experience and bringing that connection back to healthcare. And for everyone, if you have any questions, feel free to, I'll, I'll be posting Liz's contact information and her email too, so you'll have all of her information available, as well as several different links um, and articles that we discussed today. Perfect. Thank you for doing that. And I look forward to, to hearing from other like-minded folks who want to stand side by side with you and me. Thanks. It sounds great. All right. Take care, everyone. I hope you have a great week.